0: Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. Stands, you're going to have at least two ongoing characters that will be a part of the new century cast going forward because obviously we have all of these books that are going to be coming out in phase three that will have role reprisals, and that's a big enough responsibility. But if you were to take another role on, do you have a preference for a character that you might play?
1: Think about different species we've got knocking around. Elaine, Duart, Akka.
2: I did play the boy Elaine, didn't I?
1: Yeah, Yeah, you did. And you played the... Were were you the Akka girl?
0: Alex here is referring to Little M from The Christmas Thieves. And yes, that character was played by Willow.
2: Maybe um, a boy Akka from Hanoth?
3: Mm. Mm. That seems likely. Someone
2: that's testing the idea of being trans, but difficult because... Surrounded by very masculine people that don't actually have any problems with it, but he's worried. I don't
1: know about the don't have problems. I think we've now gone with people who don't have problems. I think that we need to tell more stressful stories about people who do face problems because it's all very well to do the Mass Effect. Everyone's uh, colorblind to uh, gender and sexuality. And it's like, this is the way the universe should be, except for the fact that humans are all a bunch of fucking racists and they don't like aliens. But it doesn't speak to lived experience if you go luckily for this person they didn't have to suffer they are however exactly who they want to be so yeah uh, i think future stories will be more if you're if you're playing a character that's not just straight up male or female and they are somewhere in between or they're queer in on some level then they're probably going to have to have dealt with some shit. Like it's it's uh, Gwen. I always wanted to do a, a princess who did not look like a Disney princess and had this statuesque, but very big and muscular frame. But at the same time, uh, that, that bigger girls could point to and go, she's like me, but she didn't go to high school and get called fucking Fiona from Shrek mm-hmm. by horrible girls and even worse boys. So Gwen's lived in experience means that when she gets insulted by Mortimer, it doesn't hurt like it would if you'd lived with that sort of stuff. Not you, Gwen, um, Theo, (laughs) and people who are reading the book. So yeah, we're gonna have to go a little harder.
0: Honestly, when you're talking about people experiencing difficulty within their own culture in regards to sexual or gender presentation, Mm -hmm. this makes me wonder, like, I don't want to take away from what you plan to have your starring role to be in for Crystal Punks, mm-hmm. but I have to wonder how a gender-fluid person would play in the world of
1: Autumn. Mm. They would uh, be put in this a similar camp, obviously a figurative camp at the moment, from the key holders of Elaine society as trans femme Elaine. Mm. Insofar as they don't understand someone like Attar being trans masc. it's like why would you purposefully downgrade your place in society but they would be very annoyed and paranoid about male Elaine taking stealing that place that higher up the uh, ladder in society. It's almost like putting on a monocle and pretending you're posh to, yep. to snatch all those posh jobs.
4: Also, even on a, a very superficial level, because the Elaine, if you look at their fashion, is very strictly gender coded. Yeah,
1: it's, it's ivory and, and black.
4: And Alex made the point that the younger generations are starting to want to play around with mm. that, but the older generations are suspicious of and weirded mm. out by it.
1: So the idea of a <laughs> uh, an Elaine who was actually gender fluid and went back and forth, as they felt... They would consider you to be a shapeshifter And they would be like, do not trust this impossible-to-put-in-a-box person hmm. Because a lot of
5: interactions and relationships in hmm. Elaine culture Does seem to be very much about a sort of exchange As, oh, we will have a triad that is set up like this And, hmm. oh, in this one we it's will tradition. decide And, oh, if you waver from that, it's quite all right. As long as we know what the quantifiable numbers are, yeah. of how many of this gender and how many of that gender there are. And then in,
1: here comes someone and they go, oh, my goodness, they're just changing the equation all the time. This certainly won't do. My intention is to have a trans femme lead to be focused on for Crystal Punks, because I haven't had a trans oh. femme lead yet. And that is a goal. Uh, but there's going to obviously um, Atar's going to be back, and the hmm, unless Atar doesn't survive, don't or worlds collide. <laughs> okay, I'll say that the if if Atar is not there for whatever reason, then there will be a trans But I also like the idea of of having a less focused on because we've had two, we've had an NB and gender fluid uh, major characters. Uh, but as as a support role, will be there to to open a window to that experience in Elaine society. Ultimately, we've had the what's it like to be a girl in Elaine society who has a good job? Okay, we've got that. Now moving on.
2: I love the idea of someone seeing this gender fluid Elaine's wardrobe, just the multitude of colours, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, you live with multiple people. No.
1: Mm-hmm. Although Penny was somewhat deficient because she was only a lesbian, <laughs> it's like you, you oh, you're just not trying, are you? <laughs> have you have you ever tried being bisexual? It helps with the family values, you know. Mm. Sorry, we are getting way off the mark, but it is contributory towards uh, this particular question.
2: I wanted to say something quick about rama's perception of gender or presentation Mm -hmm. and how they actively worship these shape-shifting gods or these gods with no gender or gods with all genders Mm. and i love that so very much because shape-shifting is like that's peak for me that is my dream but
5: (laughs) hashtag goals Mm -hmm. hashtag
2: goals yeah The idea that someone like Stardancer may find it difficult and terrifying to go out into a world that does worship these beings but also some of them can be confused and angry, it's the LGBTQ safe space of every world in New Century. like every trans character in autumn is gonna find resonance with trans characters in rama and trans characters anywhere else so it's the convergence of convergences mm. it's, it's a
4: multi-dimensional cue. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: so
1: multi-dimensional <laughs> intersectional yeah yeah that sounds like a Beastie Boys, Daft Punk cover, just like super group, okay. multidimensional, <laughs> intersectional, intersectional, multidimensional. Okay, carry on. <laughs> but yeah,
6: it's all. Awesome.
1: I
5: love that. I mean, I was going to say that should be a title for one of the books of this series, but
1: to be honest, it would just be all the characters high-fiving each other repeatedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, uh, and as soon as Colo does manage to cross worlds, that's going to make him pan- Dimensional. <laughs> <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> I
2: wonder and, and, if anyone in the New Century crew is a furry. Well, I've
1: always said that if Gwen meets one of the felines, she's going to go like heart eyes. Um, it's going to make it hard to fight them. I love you,
5: question. but I must punch you. I feel like. Uh, here's the scenario you have of like the character sheets of how do each of the Rama characters respond to scritches from Gwen? When Colo <laughs> <Kolo> is absolutely <laughs> against
1: it, Beatrix says.
5: No, uh, I lower, think Colo
1: but- would be really into it, frankly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this big soft woman is petting me. Mm.
1: <laughs> uh, Beatrix might feel a little bit awkward about it. Mm.
2: Physical affection is not
6: her
5: strong mm. suit. Stardancer would probably decline for the time being and mm. be uncomfortable, but. And Gwen would respect that and find a way to bond and show affection in ways that would
1: let them know that they were appreciated. I feel like yeah. Leah would be like, What are you doing? Like, <laughs> I, I, I am not a pet.
2: That <laughs> <laughs> would be so fun if. <laughs> Gwen's just petting a cat And it very seriously looks at her What the hell are you doing, mate?
1: Honestly, I feel like uh, Leah would just keep her mouth shut And then when would Gwen would go, okay That was good, wasn't it? And then walk away and Leah would be like Examining the purse she just pinched And going, wow, we've hit the jackpot here If we can get all the rich people to pet me I may be able to retire
5: <laughs> That's the It long- traps you That's the long con of all the cats
1: Mm -hmm.
5: in our world. Oh my gosh.
1: (laughs) And then they'll buy an island.
2: Laying down very unsuggestively on her back, just pet my belly, and then snatches the (laughs) purse.
1: Uh.
4: Sometimes I fear we are too
2: cute. <laughs> Honestly,
1: one of the things Willow has always adored is animals, especially when they show that they're thinking. If you if you see them on YouTube and they behave in a way that's not necessarily anthropomorphic, but it shows mm. that there's kind of a little soul in there, that, yes. that they're comprehending other animals or other people's feelings, mm. even if they're just being daft or if they get embarrassed. Mm. It's the... I suppose the, the the intimacy of seeing what an animal thinks is top tier for Willow in terms of being able to... not It's not just cute kitten videos. It actually goes beyond that.
5: Yeah, we are incredibly sympathetic towards that because, I mean, that's one of my favourite parts of the monsterverse movies is when you get a sense of how these gigantic beasts Mm. are thinking
1: muffling repose
5: yes but not necessarily in a way that is one-to-one with how humans would understand or express or articulate Mm. different feelings or ways of recognizing situations and sarah and i spend our days analyzing every one of our fish and our hamsters that we've had and we absolutely identify moments of analysis, consideration and play and affection and no, 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 no I'm quite done now uh, clear off and it's it's one of the most fulfilling things
0: we can't think... really help to know what animals are actually thinking a lot of the time we can only guess at it mm. but every now and then they will surprise us There was a video I might have been posted the Discord recently. I don't remember where I saw it, but it was specifically a cat was watching- Oh, the Lion uh, King. The Lion King, yes. And the death scene where Scar is is tossing Simba's father into the stampede. And the cat is so very clearly paying attention as they get up from where they were sitting and start pawing at the screen going, oh no, what happened?
1: Yeah, I, uh... That's when you know you've made a really powerful film, when your audience extends beyond humans. (laughs) Well, now I just have to wonder, like, how the
5: world of Rama would react if they sat down and were shown the Lion King.
1: That... Side note, corroborates my theory that, uh, I can't remember who it was that said it, because it's, it's been so long since I, I decided to set out and write a book to refute it, but that if a lion could speak English, we still would not understand it. No, but we could bloody well communicate anyway.
6: Ah,
1: yeah. mm. oh, communication, son. Well, just like, uh, get all the cats in the world, herd those cats into one big room, and show them the Lion King, and then wait, and then afterwards, any notes?
0: <laughs> well I, obviously this is a question i'm going to ask sharon and alex in more depth later on but you mentioned being able to cry on command very easily what was the most challenging part of acting leah
2: so it all came very easy to me no mm-hmm. um <laughs> i think the only thing that stands out to me is that There were a few parts where I had to be very emotional, but also keep up the Kiwi accent. So Mm -hmm. I'm mid-cry, and Dad just says, Whoops, hold on, do that one all again.
1: That's true. I was, like, trying to keep them held to the accent.
2: Luckily, that just added to my frustration, which Mm. added to my tears. You used it, yeah.
1: Usually it goes naturalistic performance, enunciation second as in every word needs to be uh you can understand it as a listener the third thing being the accent but uh, you managed to keep it up so much that it felt like what, the few occasions where you broke it honestly it felt like the accent added a layer of abstraction which allowed you to perform more than if you just used your normal speaking voice and your normal accent
0: Alex now that you've talked a little bit about the various iterations and how it changed over time when you were building Panther Soul as a story, we see if it was always going to be a treasure quest, then the the, the Indiana Jones narrative was always part of the original concept. And because you needed someone to rescue Carol from, that does kind of suggest that... A version of the cult subplot was already present mm. in some of those original ideas.
1: Originally it was going to be an all-leopard cult
0: who mm. hated
1: tigers and then I just thought, that just sounds racist. They already didn't come off particularly fantastically in uh, Tiger's Eyes simply because the closest tribe that they had troubles with uh, Durga Village were these leopards and yeah. the alliance in the end uh, felt like it was hard won, but taking it above and making it a a state of of kind of both classism and also that royalty thing about divine right Mm. and effectively claiming that some higher spirituality wants you to have all this power. And I was like, at that point, that's not racist at all. That is honing in on how cult leaders behave. And if it's a, a collection of different cats that are painting themselves with divine leopard spots, then uh it 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 becomes something that transcends individual species and races and becomes something where it's like an absorbing morass and i guess that's by the end of the
5: story we refute the idea that a divine leopard can never change its
1: spots Mm -hmm. thank you very much that was really good
0: Now that you've gone into sort of the effect that uh, the BLM protests had on writing t- Panther Soul to begin with, at what point did the minority boxing narrative, the the, the Ali part of Colo's story become a part of Panther Soul? Was that before the BLM protests or did that spin out of what you were like absorbing at that time?
1: Trying to think back on this uh, and into what elements crept into Colo's character first. Uh, I knew when we covered Indiana Jones on School of Movies, being able to look at the four films to date in perspective with him starting out trying to steal the uh, idol from the temple and running away from the natives then and then ending up effectively bringing the crystal skull back to the natives who were slaughtered by the uh, Soviets. Uh, but he has, he's come full circle, and now rather than stealing from other cultures, he's bringing stuff back. I figured I would make that the actual storyline of this, where he starts out not just plundering for, for riches, because that would make him loathsome. That's why, uh, hence, raptitude. But I, it felt like he had to be someone who was on a path that eventually came around to respecting the uh, uh, places that he had profited from. So then I thought, I can't just make him a colonial white guy, because then he's a lion. And then if I make this Lord of the Thundercats a lion again, there's a weird... There is a kind of a... There's a royalist angle on that, where it's uh, it's again it's divine right because lions of all the cats are at least within uh, Western society are the ones associated most with kingship, hence the Lion King, with Aslan and Narnia being uh, kind of Jesus in well Jesus is a furry, but. Um, <laughs> I didn't just want to do a lion and just turn up with a British accent and just be awful. And and that sort of a British Indiana Jones would just come off as obnoxious. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to play an indigenous character.
0: Listening to Alex relate this thought process, it amuses me that he's basically describing trying to avoid the white savior trope. Except in this case, it's a lion savior trope. Having said that, he got to kind of have a subversion of that trope anyway through Beatrix's arc. She wanted to make up for what she did, but she also tried to avoid being a leader and only took the mantle when it was thrust upon her. And she never really felt worthy of it either. She just figured, well, if this is what I have to do in order to make up for my past crimes, then I'll do it.
1: But then I didn't want to just be indigenous and plundering other cultures without really thinking about it or considering it. So I thought it's going to have to still come from a sort of an Indiana Jones perspective. And to that end, the new element that I uh, added to Rama, which wasn't technically present in Tiger's Eye, but feels like it was, is the idea of Bastarian and more specifically Leonidas as settlements and cities and places where lions were already living. The advantage I had with the original Tiger's Eye is that Harau is discovering all of this stuff with the reader, much like she's a a Harry Potter type, realizing how big the world actually is. So to that end, anything Harau didn't directly see and wasn't directly told, I can add to. And so once it became a case of there are colonial lions already in Rama trying to do the American settlers story, then it could become a kind of a, there are elements of the slavery of the South and there's a very specific plantation imagery.
0: Not just that, but also some Roman Empire stuff. Spencer mentioned that Maximus specifically got his name thanks to Russell Crowe's The Gladiator. And while we eventually move into a boxing narrative, what Colo referred to as the third of his lives very much had more of a gladiatorial arena aspect to it, even when he was doing fisticuffs instead of blood sports.
1: But also, from watching Ali over and over again, I I really got from that one uh, Michael Mann film the supreme challenge of being a person who was a sportsman who could offer white people himself and his skill, but at the same time felt torn between his... Uh, uh, cultures overseas, which he doesn't he didn't necessarily directly stem from. It's the going across to Zaire and seeing how the people of Zaire react to him, specifically standing up to the American government. And I just thought that is such it's it's a it's a true story and it's a real guy who had to be incredibly brave and stand by his convictions. I've always loved that film and Will Smith's performance is just an atomic bomb. And so I was thinking if I'm going to have someone who's kind of got a poor foot in both camps and feels like there was some colonial in there, but at the same time, he is of an indigenous place. If I hone in on Ali and somehow incorporate that into uh, Indiana Jones, I got someone who effectively becomes a great big loudmouth braggart. So you get the Thor story as well. Someone who's got uh, an overabundance of pride and needs to be brought low and made humble. And just as this character became richer and more layered, I was like, I'm going to have to work out a way to say how he got this aspect in his life and then how he got this aspect in his life. And so I divided up his life into so he could go from here, then he could be taken here, and he could witness this tyranny firsthand or first poured so that we get a really sharp idea of what it's like to be Effectively coded black in an all-white society that only considers you for what your usefulness is to them. And was it around that point that the idea of
5: cats with nine lives, Mm. it struck you as, oh, this is how I can thread all these disparate parts of this cat's identity together is by literalizing it because... That was something I was always very fond of when you, early on, I forget if this was around the time that the book had come out or sometime before the audio drama was going to be released, you made it clear that Kolo had multiple voices within himself and they each were sort of reflective of these different modes that he would shift gears between... Mm. It helps because that reflects the structure of the book because with having this sliding time scale where we will spend time in the present but we'll go back to this point in his life and the nine lives not only is a fun pun but it also actually helps us keep track of wait which part of colo's past did this happen in again we can actually map it out and say right this is before this but after that
1: did the nine have... lives thing yeah. became clear when I realised that uh, in almost each incidence he would be trying to separate himself from that part of his life and would consider mm. it uh, a, a new life and a reinvention of himself, and which just happened to neatly go into nine. And I wasn't trying to reach nine. I wanted to him to have some for the end, but I have his last lives mapped out. Because there has to
5: be a sense that he... Has something ahead of him, mm. Greg? Have you seen *Puss in Boots: The Last Wish* yet? No, I haven't. <laughs> one of the best films of the year. It's, I,
0: I'm, I, I definitely plan on seeing it. Lardicolo
5: have... and Puss in that one. Praising.
1: <laughs>
0: That's perfectly. You don't need. You don't need to sell it to me any further, (laughs) sir. I promise that I will see it. It's fine. Um, It's
1: clear that the uh, makers of Puss in Boots: The Last Wish are big fans of Panther Soul and (laughs) have incorporated, reincorporated that into uh, the fairy one.
4: How could they not?
1: (laughs) It's just. It's just. It's perfect irony because I based Miguel Uh, on freaking Antonio Banderas, (laughs) like his his whole like him being this young uh, like I was looking at uh, the in The Mask of Zorro he plays this young kid to begin with obviously it's not Banderas but it's a kid who's going to grow into Banderas and I was like what if you took that kid out from that setting there and he's slowly going to grow into Antonio Banderas and then you put him in Rama.
6: Hmm.
5: This is a bit of a sidetrack which we have had none of these on the show so far (laughs) It did strike me when we were watching Honor Among Thieves yesterday that that film actually hit some of the elements of that Zorro film with Antonio Banderas quite mm. well. Just the idea of this person who was once an outlaw coming back after time away in prison and finding that their daughter is now inaccessible to them. Mm. And it, it made me miss that film, so I think I might break that out again because all of this tangle of influences is just wonderful to put on the whiteboard and see where these things that keep resonating with us, how they can be expressed and why they keep working for us.
0: Sharon, we've already talked with Maya about her being cast as Mog, and by now you've heard her response to it, or at least how she interpreted what happened in regarding to who got cast as whom. I'm curious to hear it from your perspective, because she said Alex wanted a specific accent, and you were just better at delivering that accent. And meanwhile, she already had done sort of the background on the kind of character that Mog was, and so therefore was able to encapsulate some of the essence of being a cult leader into her performance. What was it like for you auditioning for the roles?
4: we're casting back a long way here so i'm gonna have to see what i can remember about it but um, it was it's...
1: uh it was one afternoon and i uh had you and maya geared up and said right look we've got you two both the roles are fairly meaty mm. and we want to like see who's going to be best suited for both mm. and so you did yours maya did maya's
4: you obviously have a far better memory of it than i do so. okay
1: I don't know like originally it was going to be that you were very clipped and very kind of uh, like an evil mortimer mm. and then I said hang on a second what's an accent that we don't usually hear in american productions least of all given to someone who's actually scary and I said go for northern And specifically kind of a Yorkshire accent, which is something you're very familiar with. Mm.
4: Sean Bean, when he plays villains, generally mitigates his accent and makes it sound a little bit more posh.
1: Yeah, Mm. but I was going for more of a... uh a Bronte villain Mm. type uh, Mm -hmm. voice, someone who was just very earthy and honestly wouldn't be connected with your usual preconceived assumptions about someone who's an admiral and has risen to this incredibly high rank by brown nosing and going to the right schools. Hence the line about it seems Shrike did go to a school like that but always felt like an outsider and wore their uniform with disdain. Mm Hmm. Heathcliff, Uh, if they were a villain. Yeah, and uh, there's actually a villain in the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, the original one, who barely ever gets mentioned, who's like Culter Beckett's man, the guy who sort of like stabs people.
0: Mm -hmm. That would be Ian Mercer, played by David Schofield in the first three Pirates movies. A man that doesn't get much solo screen time, but comes across as a cold, ruthless, and loyal enforcer, to Lord Beckett.
1: Evening, Governor. Shame, that He was carrying this. It's a letter to the king. It's from you. (laughs) Someone wants a word with you, and it's like, that guy is scarier than fucking Davy Jones. Mm -hmm. So I thought, right, so what if we just took that energy and put it into a character who's utterly humorless and cold to the point of psychopath. Sharon just went, ...opened her mouth and then just delivered, line for line, every single delivery of that absolutely spot-on, bone-chilling.
4: Do you think for even a moment that I will decide against this tactic?
1: Her voice echoes around the ruins.
4: I can assure you that while absolutely everything you care for is going to be taken away if you don't capitulate, I will lose nothing. If we cannot find this treasure for King Louis, we shall simply return to him empty pod and say it was always a legend. At which point I will inform him that I found, and slaughtered, the captain of the Crimson Serpent. And will receive a shiny new medal to put right.
6: Here.
1: She taps the outer breast pocket of her coat, where decorations would usually go.
4: I shall rest for a month and then be back out on the ocean on our next manoeuvre, while you and your cronies rot underneath the dirt we stand upon
1: and i was like where are you getting this from because sharon is the least cruel person you will ever meet
4: i'm also a good actress um- sorry for
1: <laughs> yammering away but you forgot about your own brother no
4: no that's that's that thank you that's a, a great summation of it i mean the the getting the yorkshire accent was not something that was going to be an issue for me because i grew up between the ages of eight and eighteen, in North Yorkshire, and then lived in West Yorkshire for a couple of years after that. So it, it's and, and my dad's from there originally. So um, like family accents around me, it's it's something that is very very familiar to me, and it was not difficult to lapse into and maintain. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. say that uh, Sharon is not cruel. Weirdly enough, the person that came to mind when listening to Shrike for the first time was like if Jasper, as in one of Cruella's flunkies, had managed to make good uh, and was far less of a humorous character and more of a deadly character. Oh, oh well.
6: Come on, Horace. Let's get on with it. I'll pop
1: them on the head, you do the skinning.
6: Oh, no you don't, Jasper. I'll pop them off and you do the skinning.
1: Hey, Horace, look. They're gone. They flew the coop right out through this little hole. Here, grab a torch. We'll run them down before you can say Bob's your uncle.
4: It was an interesting challenge to combine the an, an accent which is customarily associated with... Martha types. Simplicity, and whether that be positive simplicity and somebody who is sort of warm and nurturing but not terribly smart, or negative simplicity in terms of being somebody who is oh, dumb sh- and looked down on.
1: You made Shrike someone that, underestimating, would get you killed.
4: Absolutely. And and also, it felt like a, a lot of her resentment at her, or or this was what I tried to feed into it, her resentment at her ascending to the position that she has is because of how she's had to do that there's there's been tooth and nail fighting for her I feel not even necessarily in the physical sense although obviously there's that too but in the having to convince people to give her these steps up the ladder without kowtowing and and playing the game, because I feel like she's the kind of person who wouldn't. Mm. She would do this the hard way.
1: Yeah, she would mm. do this the hard way in it, uh, by demonstrating over and over again that she was the best line for the job and didn't give a shit about their underestimations. Absolutely. She's very yeah. Game of Thrones.
4: Yeah. 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 Although the Yorkshire accents go with all the good guys in that.
1: Yeah, true. <laughs> I didn't but- want to just go let's just take a bit of George R. R. Martin and drop it in there. I'm going to mix it up a little bit.
0: (laughs) But it also makes me think about how Beatrix was portrayed back in Tiger's Eye before we knew more about her story. And I, I felt like, I don't know if this was intended or not, there was a sort of a similarity there in terms of these prominent, powerful female characters who are nonetheless asked to do all of this heavy lifting, all of this dirty work, so that someone else, the male of the Pride, can profit. And it Ooh. it felt a little bit to me like Shrike was a little bit of what Beatrix experienced, but even darker. She had to fight more. She had more resistance along the way. She She had her rank. But she still, the fighting never stopped for her. Mm, She never felt like she'd finally made it because someone else could always potentially take it away from her.
4: Yeah, the lionesses get sent out to do the hunting, but it's still the pride male that gets to eat first.
5: Mm. When I refer to Panther Soul, I often say that it has the scariest villains in all of New Century. Morgue taps into something primal and ineffable, There, Alex, I did learn how to say the name. Uh, (laughs) But Shrike is intensely intimidating in her own right. What are the key differences between the nature of the fear that we feel towards Shrike compared with how we feel in Morg's presence?
4: The way I kind of see the difference between them is it comes down to what elements of you they will shred Mm. shrike is a physical threat she is physically dominant she's an amazing fighter
1: she will ruin your body Absolutely.
4: and kill you yeah mm. whereas morgue will do the same thing with your soul
0: mm. honestly it, it intrigues me to hear you say that sharon because it's definitely true that Mog is better at the psychological aspects of it. As Maya put it at one point, Mog is very good at finding people's buttons. They know how to press it, they know how to get someone on their side, and then they know how to double down on that through being both a source of pleasure and approval, but also of you fear the thing that gives you the positive reinforcement. In Shrike's case, she may have a lot of intrinsic power in terms of being a leader of Albion's army, and she may have a lot of physical power in terms of being able to succeed in a fight. But she does seem to have a canniness that comes down to, I know how to hurt somebody, not just through violence, but through how to properly apply that violence, mm. such as when she's killing Beatrix's crew or when she executes uh, Maximus. She does have an idea of how to attack people emotionally. She just does it through application of physical violence rather than application of psychological violence. Mm.
4: I think a part of that is that unlike Morgue, I feel like Shrike sees her opponents only very, very rarely as people that she needs something from.
1: Or only. as people. She's so detached yeah. from people.
4: Absolutely. They, they, are, they are obstacles, but they're not necessarily resources in the way that Morg sees them as resources, if that makes sense.
0: Or alternately, one resource is just as good as another if she's leading soldiers and they're all just like, okay, yeah, you can stab people. You can stab Mm. people. You can all do the job. I want to see who does does the job best, but that doesn't make any one of you more valuable than the others in the long scheme of things. Absolutely.
4: And in a way, that's almost worse because it, it diminishes each person's individuality. It strips them of their value as a a single entity and just makes them a piece of the puzzle, which is obviously what's happened to her because she's been through this education process and training process and and employment, for want of a better word, process that has made her a cog in the machine. It's just that she's turned out to be the biggest cog with the sharpest teeth.
5: Mm. Mm. It occurs to me that the nature of their existence is so different, not just in the sense of the supernatural and uh, Shrike existing in something very societal. It's also that Morgue, as you say, is drawing from resources in order to sustain this long existence that they are so invested in being this ever-present column that supports the rest of existence. It's very like Smaug and how they were characterised in the Hobbit films Mm. as this thing that sees itself as the centre of the universe. Mm. Shrike has no such illusions of that. Shrike is desperately clawing for every inch of ground gained. And is aware of just how easily life can be snatched away because they do it Strike does it so often herself to other people. And that means that everything they do is fast and sudden. That's how you survive. You don't slowly draw your vitality from other people in order to sustain a long life. You Hit the other person hard and fast so that they die before they have a chance to do that to you.
0: Keenly aware of the fact that she will always be, as you put it a moment ago, a cog in the machine and will never necessarily be a Sir Dashington.
1: Yeah, she I don't. uh, Yeah, no, she did actually meet Sir Dashington and she regards him and uh, Carstairs, who previously been able to command scenes with the same level of disdain. Mm.
4: Mm. Yeah, I think part of it as well is that she doesn't really have any ambition of her own in terms of, of what she ultimately wants for herself. Her plans and aims. Like I said, she sees all these people as as obstacles, but the goals she's striving towards are all other peoples. They're all on behalf of Albion. Mm. These are not things that she wants individually, whereas she's... Dashington is much more, he has his own plans and schemes for himself.
1: She's proving herself to the world over and over again, she has contempt for even the approval that that gets. Mm. She's not looking for approval. She's just looking to constantly show people, I'm the one who got this done. But also kind of, she grouses about that to herself in mm. her mind in a kind mm. of, you know, I'm the only one who can get this done.
6: Yeah. But muggins here, what
4: this muggins
1: is... is a very British expression, <laughs> meaning, meaning uh, yeah, who's going to do it, me. Obvious, the
4: mug yeah, yeah. but the, but i think part of that is that she's she's locked in a survival pattern mm.
1: this is this mm.
4: is the same cycle of prove yourself or you're useless and therefore dead prove yourself or you're useless and therefore dead mm. and she just lives that over and over and over again and honestly if she ever got to the point where she lived to retire I don't know what she'd do.
1: I know. She wouldn't retire. She would refuse. There's a couple of characters that I'm thinking of that uh, uh, are similar. She doesn't live for the finer things in life. Mm-hmm. She doesn't live for anything spiritual. She doesn't connect to other people. I suppose the closest would be, uh, you know, there's... The guys who advertise their their websites on YouTube and like if you pay me two thousand dollars, I can tell you how to get the sports cars, how to get those beautiful women.
3: Oh God.
1: Um, yeah. Yes. That's-
3: I matter. What does mattering look like? (laughs) How does 1.3 million subscribers sound? And let me tell you, that didn't just happen by accident. In the time that you have been watching this video, I have gained triple digit followers, burnt 400 calories, and even launched my own cryptocurrency, Bestcoin. Never heard of it? Mm. You'll be paying your taxes in it in two years. And what have you done? Uh, buddy, you, you did what you always do, nothing. And it's time for that to stop with four simple words. Social media generated income. But Leslie, is that really possible? Well, why don't you ask my sports car, my dolphin rodeo, my plane mansion? I have four wives and 17 husbands. None of them even know about each
1: other. The they, wolf like, it's just the achievement. It's mm-hmm. just the being able to say, look, I got this. Mm. I, I got that right. And it's rather than Dashington's, the vanity side of that, where he's like, look at my wonderful collection of things. It's more the, the state of almost like each thing is a competition that you win. So that made it a very cold, hard state of affairs when she went up against Kolo. She hides that fact about herself to lure him into the ring. She wants to destroy him in front of everybody else and have everyone confer a level of quiet respect upon her and Mm. for her never to have to question or reference that fact.
0: Yeah. I was just gonna say, it just makes me think of that running joke in every OSP uh, Trope Talk episode, where it's not even something that she says, but like in the animation, someone goes up and says, hey, kid, you like proving yourself? Do I?
5: <laughs> <laughs> but it's the dark version
1: of that.
4: No, what? not really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she doesn't like proving herself, but she gets a glimmer of achievement from it. Mm-hmm. It feels it's like, more uh,
5: like it's to spite others than mm-hmm. it is to necessarily get that
1: self-vindication. If she wasn't as terrifying, she would actually come off like those people who get really, really pissy when anyone gets handed... An easier time of things in video games mm-hmm. because yeah. they value their achievement in video games above all other things, yeah. and the oh. idea that someone could complete a video game without having to apply the same level of mastery as mm-hmm. them disgusts them. Do you know? Oh, what? you're I know a
5: bit you're dark so... souls using spells. I used it with my own fists, like a <laughs> true gamer. Yeah.
4: <laughs> you, you say that
5: exactly. um,
4: you, you didn't want her voice to be that sort of clipped cat version of Mortimer. But in terms of character, she has a lot in common with Mortimer. That isolation, that not connecting with anybody or, or having anything that gives their life a particular meaning.
1: Mortimer has vanity, though. Vanity. Definitely my favourite sin. If you remember, the, mm. the, the the way she's arranged her home, she's made herself queen of the fairies, but she's incredibly lonely. Mm. I, I almost... like One of the things that I love the most in uh, movies and uh, books and just any kind of comic story is handcuffing together two people who should not work together and should not be close to each other and forcing them to make their way through something, having to cooperate... And to that end, if you harness together Mortimer and Shrike, if they somehow manage to get through without cutting each other's ha- paws off or ha- hand or paw, It almost seems like Mortimer would be one of the few people who might be able to get through to Shrike. Mm. And at the same time, she wouldn't even be trying to. It's just that Mortimer has more of a line than even she would like to admit, Mm. whereas Shrike doesn't.
4: Yeah, if if Shrike wasn't so dangerous, it wouldn't be difficult to feel sorry for her. Mm. But because she's so dangerous... If you feel sorry for her, that's the weakness that she'll use to get to you.
1: And as yeah. much as uh, Mohawk is a, a psychopath who is sadistic and wants to inflict pain, he does it for the feeling of power that that gives him. He he would do that in private, whereas Shrike needs people to see her achieve. Mm-hmm. And again, way. treat that, uh, any respect that they confer, with disdain. This
5: is very sobering but a very amusing thought went through my mind a moment ago when you were describing mortimer and shrike being handcuffed together there's only really one way that would end which is that mortimer slips her hand out and then shrike says
4: you mean you could have done that at any time not at any time darling only when it was funny <laughs> <laughs>
0: that is thank one you. The big differences is, is that mortimer at- for all that she may isolate herself from others at least it sounds like she's having fun yeah mm. yeah <laughs>
1: there's a lot of differences between those yeah. two but oh, yeah. there yeah. there are the, the similarities are in how they've chosen to conduct their life mm. and oh interesting both of them seem to be private school educated or public mm. school as they call it in the UK
6: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> the that is not character. by the way a condemnation of all private schooling but there is a certain
4: The nature of it is that you go into an environment where you no longer have the protection of your parents when you are at an age where you still really, really need that and you have to, by necessity, build up protective barriers that will then prevent you from connecting with people later in life. Yeah.
5: The character that I actually connect with Shrike is that they feel like a version of Carmilla from the Castlevania Netflix series Mm. that Mm. lacks that established power and reach that Carmilla has because everything about what she's doing in that is that she will just inflict pain and draw fuel energy from that, even if it's not the most sort of thought out thing and she even admits that if i succeed in hurting the world and getting everything that i ever want i don't know what end i want to come after that i don't even think i care i just want to do it because that's what fuels me and propels me forward
4: yeah almost like the effort of fighting against the useless imbeciles that they're surrounded by Mm. is what keeps them
1: going Mm. it's being motivated by contempt and hate rather than something positive yeah because i don't think that shrike would respond
5: positively to other characters who matched her. I think if they were surrounded by people who came from the exact same upbringing, who had the exact same level of frustration and difficulty getting where they were, and they all wanted to work towards some goal, Shrike wouldn't gain solace from that, because they define themselves by their opposition to what they hate. She has no idea who she is if she's with someone alike to her
4: yeah i I think if she was going to come up against her, nemesis isn't the right word. the The thing that just deflates all the power out of her completely, it would be the opposite. It would be somebody so tiny and unable to go up against her. There would be just this tiny little spark inside her that i, I what the hell am I I can't do
1: this. Leah got to her. yeah. Mm. she didn't let it on much, but Leah, like she could have killed Leah. And didn't. Mm. Yeah.
4: And I think that's the best we can hope for today.
1: <laughs> and it wasn't just because she didn't want to be seen killing a cub in front of the uh, crowd. She was even kind of showboating that, you know, I, I would flex my rule about uh, not killing cubs. I, I believe that if she had to, she would, but it's possible that if she was handcuffed to either Leah, Merlane, or the nag, you might be able to save Shrike's soul. Mm. But
5: that leads neatly onto one of my questions, which is how could we save her soul? Uh, or I think we like, just said. Yeah, that's it. Okay, you know what? Scrub that question. I, I'm not going to describe else. exactly
1: what it would take, but ultimately, she needs a massive dose of perspective, which is what Baltus needed. But mm. even then, in the book, it still didn't 100% fix every Baltus. Yes
0: i always asking people that aren't Alex what it's like to play the villain. Shrike is clearly no less complicated than Calendula, but as we've established, she's dangerous in a way that Calendula just isn't. But I am wondering if there was anything to Shrike that came from some part of your experience rather than like what Maya did with Mog was just a costume that you put on. In order to play out
4: the role i think there was an element of that yeah other than the accent coming from my family background and growing up experiences i
1: there's something about the northern there's... accent sorry to butt in here mm. there's something about the northern accent that says don't get too big for your boots
4: Mm, yeah yeah and okay you've so been told there are... yeah.
1: don't act like you're <laughs> clever or better than everyone else <laughs>
4: That's true yes um so yeah okay maybe there's there's some little threads in there i mean i i would certainly say that obviously when you're you're performing a role you you magnify what you're drawing on to make mm. that character larger than life and uh, unique to themselves i haven't dealt with anybody in my life who is as
1: oh my god no horrendous <laughs> I would hope right, not. I would also hope that Maya has never crossed paths with someone who's <laughs> a, a a million year old vampire witch
6: well, indeed,
4: yeah. So yeah, I suppose there's there are there are some elements of that that I was able to observe, shall we say, in my mm-hmm. past history. But like I said, you amp it up and you make it more focused and and a more intense version of of what you may have observed. In the past, but yeah, she is she's a bad one.
1: Mm. You I were mean, not I... relishing those voice sessions, were you?
4: Um, I, I not in terms of the the performance. I actually quite like the challenge of doing the accent. Mm. It's it's almost like doing the Russian or the Eastern European accent. And there's something about that inflection that I find fun. Uh, but the content of what Shrike was saying obviously was significantly less fun than the silent one. Mm.
0: But the reason I brought it up in part was because you've mentioned in passing, but also it's informed on your assessment of other pieces of media, your army brat background. Mm. So you might have had access to people that, you know, were career soldiers, career military. And therefore I wondered, had you met anybody during that part of your life that might have informed upon Shrike at all?
4: I think on reflection and taking that into context, I'm going to say that the reason I said initially that I hadn't seen anybody like that is the same reason why people standing in the middle of London say that they can't see England.
0: Great moment for Sharon to use that quote, considering Good Omen Season 2 just came out.
4: I was so surrounded by elements of that that it just became part of the, the background. background. Noise, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. So yes, with, with that in mind, um again, nobody that horrendous, obviously, but but certainly threads of that attitude and behavior and how that could be twisted mm. to the ends of the people in charge. Also, I used to watch a lot of Sharp and Uh, Americans
1: might need Sharp
4: explaining. Okay, right. Mm. So, um,
1: oh, yeah, no, well, that was one of the remits. It was like, right, I've just realized what you're doing, evil Sharp.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Or some of the people that he went up against. So, Sharp is a TV series that Sean Bean did. Back in the 90s, early 2000s? Late 80s,
1: early. Let me just check.
4: I was going to say, it definitely wasn't late 80s, because I was a teenager when it was happening. And it's set in the Napoleonic Wars era, and Sharp is a... 1993 it began. Ah, there we go. Okay, So it's based on a series of novels, which my granddad was well into. But the TV series is based around Sharp's process of going from being an enlisted man because he's he's a Yorkshireman and comes from a poor family and joined up because, you know, food and pay and they give you clean boots, that kind of thing. But
1: Sharp is a hero. He's a decent guy. He absolutely
4: is. And through sheer fluke, he ends up being captain. It's sort of this, this clash of Officers being privately, you know, these public schoolboy idiots who don't know what they're doing. And Sharp's the first person who's sort of been put in a position of, of straddling the gap between the actual soldiers on the coalface who know what they're doing but are never given any opportunity to lead and the people who always get put in charge but haven't got a clue.
1: Oi.
6: Soldier. Who goes there? Lieutenant Sharp, 95th Rifles. Forgive me, sir, I didn't see you proper. And who are you? Isaiah Tongue, chosen man, sir. <laughs> chosen man? Where are the others, Tongue? In the barn, sir. Sleeping on sentries a shooting charge. If I catch it again, I'll do it myself.
3: He could have had you shot, Sergeant. Not me. Major Dunnett didn't like officers made up from the ranks. Come on, Isaiah. I want to see
0: what happens when he wakes Harper. The scene with Sharp then continues to an altercation with the soldier called Harper, which results in a scuffle between the two, quickly interrupted by...
3: Who <laughs> oh, the blazes are you, Lieutenant Sharp. Sir. These are my orders. Sharp. Sharp. Are you the
1: fellow that Wellesley raised from the ranks?
5: Sir. These papers are in order, sir.
1: Seems Sharp distinguished himself. Not here, he hasn't. Brawling with common soldiers. Won't do Sharp.
3: No, sir. Harper. You struck
0: an officer. It's
3: a shooting matter. I woke him up, sir. He thought I was an intruder. All my fault, sir. If you say so. But
0: we have standards here, Sharp. An officer must behave like a
1: gentleman, even if he is not a gentleman. Yes, sir. We march in an hour. Form a guard.
4: Balancing in between these two worlds, but not really Being able to fully be a part of either of them, and in Shrike's case, not really wanting to be a part of either of them, uh, also fed into that, I think.
0: So great. So we take good Sean Bean from Sharp and then mix in some of the evil Sean Beans from some of the other roles he's played. Mm. And that's how you get Shrike. Yes.
5: As an aside, actually, I was lucky enough to once meet uh, the author of the Sharps books. Uh, oh, nice. Nice. oh, well,
4: nice. Yeah, he
5: uh, he did a very good sort of presentation to our class in our school where he, one of the questions he was asked about, which is the one that I think a lot of authors get asked is, you know, what drew you to write these books? And for him, he was saying that he had writer's block and he went to, Collects some books to just sort of spark his imagination and he was looking for essentially what the Sharp books would end up being but he couldn't find it so he thought well I'm going to write the books that I want to read mm. and that always stuck with me as
1: pertinent <laughs> advice <laughs> me and the guy who wrote Sharp are like this <laughs> Of all the
5: books so far, Panther Soul might be the most singular in its focus when it comes to the many worlds of new century. Panther Soul is a book about Rama and its characters, as well as its myths, threats, and conflicts, which are all decidedly of Rama. Even Tiger's eye had the appearance of a child from the human world century driving much of the plot. Did the process of writing this story feel any different as a result? Did you miss
1: the Wind Doors, or was it a welcome reprieve from them i think originally in the planning phase uh, miguel was obviously going to be there so it would feel like there was someone from another world who could lend perspective and it was going to culminate in a bunch of cats going through to century so it was going they were there to begin with but as i wrote the beatrix character and rewrote her and uh, expanded upon that and and asked myself, how do you become a slaver slowly? Mm -hmm. It it, It felt like such a character piece that it didn't need to touch any of the other worlds. And it wasn't actually until I read your question over these past few days that I realized it wasn't a conscious decision to remove it from the portals, and then I went back and counted through all the books, and I could not think of one which doesn't have some kind of reference to the portals, aside from the knock-on effect of Miguel being in this world. It's there, quietly mm. in the background, but never spoken about. I knew that because I did the
5: exact same thing. I It occurred to me, and then I went through each of them. I thought, no, there's that reference right at the very end of Cartographers and mm-hmm. in well tiger's eye is all pretty much in one world but no the whole point about that is that you're returning like trans-dimensional jungle book boy um Mowgli. 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 it's just a strange experience i think because it feels simultaneously like it's expanding because we're blowing rama wide open but we're also zeroing in our focus entirely on rama I agree.
1: Uh, yes. I think, um, <laughs> bear in mind that as I wrote this story, uh, it was the big question was, how the hell do I do it better than Tiger's Eye? Mm. And Tiger's Eye, I think the, the, the key there was that there was a massive scope, but it was very personal stakes. And that's kind of been the watchword since I began with uh, New Century. Mm. So I, I figured the only way I could do that more was to have even more massive stakes but even more personal stakes and have these personal stakes intermingle with one another and how each character feels about the other because it's it ended up being an ensemble piece it's supposed to be an Indiana Jones story but it's more like Guardians of the Galaxy almost more so than Princess Thieves maybe more like Guardians of the Galaxy 3 Sharon won't know what that means. And Greg, did you get to see it?
0: No, I have not seen it yet, so mm. I'll have to... I mean, I know that people are enjoying it so far, but uh, yeah.
1: We are
5: somewhat behind on uh, Marvel stuff anyway. I think for us, it was just... It was a bad time to go into something which I knew would break my heart. Mm. So we are saving
1: that for when we feel ready for it. It's it's certainly not one-to-one, but there's a sharpness and a hurt, which, I mean, it's, it's in Princess Thieves as well. hmm But I mean, uh, this and the Princess Thieves both have that one thing in common. They weren't part of the original plan. And then as I expanded on what I wanted, I figured out ways to make it really matter. And Mm. if I could hurt me badly, then it would have a sense of weight to it. And unfortunately, that meant hurting me.
5: We're always very mean to you, Alex. We always berate you for hurting us with the... Mm story twists and turns and whatnot but lest we forget you're first and foremost hurting yourself with Mm. all of this so i guess misery loves company is the takeaway (laughs) from
3: all of that sometimes the only option is to look the other party in the eye with a sigh and say you did this to you at which point it's
6: going down for real
1: it well, was... thank you for keeping me company.
6: <laughs>
5: <laughs> I'm struggling to think of a question to really sort of pivot from that, except to say that Panther Soul, I think, surprised all of us. For me, it was especially surprising because I had just proclaimed that's it, Stone Spring Maidens is my favourite hmm. book in all of New Century, and then Panther Soul decided to say, "Hold my beer." This is a neat little question for as we approach the end of this recording session at least, but what would you say you are most proud of with your work on this book or what surprised you most in how it all came out in The Wash?
1: I think it surprised me that as I uncovered more and more of Rama, I realised that it, it had kind of always been there. And it felt natural being able to go to these places because there's a reason that so many of my heroes have got this yearning to explore. They feel constrained by whatever civilization they were born into and they want to roam and they want to be kind of alone, but at the same time, they need people and that came across as a bunch of very lonely characters found each other. I think that's the element of guardians that it, it most zeroes in on. Princess Thieves, as much as it's like guardians, it's two couples who have been together for a long time and really care about each other, meeting up and kind of maybe trading partners if you want to get incestuous about it. But <laughs> there's less of that sense of loneliness, which is why Mortimer, because again, with uh, Merlin and the Nag their partners, and they have been for Mm. an astonishing amount of time. So Mortimer comes along and defines herself in a way that she doesn't even want to admit by being the lonely one.
4: Oh, I see. I'm the, let me see, one, two, three, seventh wheel.
1: Mm. (laughs) With the wry smile at the orgy. Mm. Um, (laughs) But with, with this, everyone's lonely. And I feel like that was an aspect of the Force Awakens of all things, that was never really capitalized upon in Star Wars until maybe near the end of uh, uh, of last Jedi where they're all together we have everything we need. That's the ultimate resolution and that Ryan Johnson managed to sort of zero in on and they've gone from living separate, solitary, lonely, sad lives to holding on to what's worth fighting for.
4: I think that was a key element of making the threat feel, very present and valid because the idea that everybody in this is is lonely and looking for a source of connection that's why morgue is such a potential
1: mm-hmm.
4: a pit that everybody could fall into Because Which is a temptation as as maya very astutely put it People don't join a cult, they join a good thing that offers them something that they are missing. So everybody here had to be missing something that Morg could potentially snare them in with.
1: Mm. She doesn't manage to, to work her magic magic on Beatrix or Maximus, but knowing those characters, you know that there are times in both their lives when Morg could have had them.
0: Mm, but you're also saying that the secret sauce in Rama is that everyone is cats. Yes. Being loners, but still craving companionship, much like a cat.
1: I am the cat that walks by himself, and all places are alike to me. Hello, Aslan.
0: And that brings us to the end of another interview. No panther Soul bloopers this time. I've got one set left, and I'm saving it for the final episode. But I do have some outtakes from this Skype session, followed by another addition to my personal panther soul playlist It's okay. Honestly, we've had relatively good luck with our setup. I know that you have had some uh, some issues in the past, but I've had like I have had one catastrophes time. in the past. <laughs>
4: Yeah, there
1: we go. Are we? I'm just going to keep a running pun count. A punning
5: one. I I shudder to think the number of cat puns in your household. Uh, Sorry, I was trying to write this down. Uh, Yeah, I could go for pizza later. (laughs) Pizza. Yeah, pizza. Did you You bring enough for everyone? Well, (laughs) no, we we haven't ordered it yet. But like, I don't know. Will you bring enough for everyone? (laughs) (laughs) Will we bring enough? Behold, Probably not. The digital pizza. Pizza.
0: <laughs> what kind of pizza does Crunchy like?
5: Ah, meaty,
6: <laughs> very
5: meaty. <laughs> uh, but yeah, go ahead and order it whenever you want, and I
1: can—I'll have it post podcast. Actually, that grinding sound you can hear is Indy chewing a big wooden block.
5: Mm. So cool. so, see, isn't... I thought that was the wooden block I was chewing
1: in between questions. <laughs>
0: Is it a wooden block that he's supposed to chew? Is it his chewing block? Oh, yeah, no, it's, block? It's
1: a Instead of the sideboard, chew on this uh, seasoned wood that's good for dog's teeth and won't splinter.
0: Mm. Oh, okay. I didn't know that was a thing. Mm. Uh-huh. I leave
1: bits all over my freaking office.
0: <laughs> I just thought if you want to give something for a dog to chew on, it would be a nice rawhide bone or something like that.
1: Or a pig's ear. I love
0: those.
1: Sorry to give you extra work, guys.
0: No, it's perfectly okay. I was already going to end up doing Alex, that. You give us all this work.
5: <laughs> like <Sorry>. we, <laughs> What do you think this is? It's not something we're doing because of some other series of books that some other guy wrote. Mm,
1: that's true. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Let, let's go back and cross off number two here, just so we have a nice... Uh, row here of strike throughs.
5: all right so it took us uh, two and a half hours but we've got to question number two <laughs> all right uh what is this school of movies <laughs> <laughs> what is this a crossover episode <laughs> i made this joke like back when we were first starting i can't keep reavers take this material um <laughs>
1: Oh, Sarah, also, like, it's 9.51 at night, and you guys were trying to get pizza. Oh, Sarah's been eating pizza in the corner
5: this entire time. Oh, Toby, t- have pizza, please! <laughs> I'll have pizza in a
0: sec. Don't worry. It'll taste all the sweeter. A lot of older folks will be familiar with this song, and given the theme of aloneness mentioned in the ending discussion, I felt it appropriate to bring forwards from my past. Until next time, remember, everybody hurts.
6: When your day is long And the night, the night is young